located in northern France, is one of the most well-known wine-producing regions on Earth. In fact, it's so well-known that it has legally protected the name of its signature product around the world. It's the preferred drink for both royalty and rappers, and you'll find it at nightclubs and brunches. Yet, its discovery was believed to be an accident. An accident that is today a $6 billion industry. Learn more about champagne, how it was created, and its place in the world on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935, after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. This episode is sponsored by ButcherBox. Summer is right around the corner, and that means cookouts. No matter what your preferred food is for a cookout or a barbecue, ButcherBox can help you make it the best. If you want to serve up some hamburgers, ButcherBox has grass-fed ground beef to make the perfect smash burger. Want to cook up some steaks? Well, ButcherBox has that too, with some of the best cuts of steak, such as New York Strip, ribeye, and filet mignon. Do you like grilled chicken? Well, ButcherBox has some of the best pasture-raised chicken that you will find anywhere. And if you really want to wow people at your next cookout, you can try grilling some of their wild-caught salmon on a cedar plank. Sign up at ButcherBox.com daily and get a special deal. ButcherBox is offering my listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com daily and use code daily to choose your free-for-a-year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Wine has been produced around the Mediterranean for thousands of years. However, it probably didn't reach northern France until about the 5th century. The wine which was grown at this time was just wine, not radically different from the wine you'd see grown in other regions. By all accounts, the wine originally produced in the Champagne region of France was a light, fruity wine in contrast to the darker, heavier wines found in Italy. Perhaps most importantly for the winemakers in Champagne, their wines weren't considered as high quality as the wines in the neighboring region of Burgundy. The main city in the Champagne region is Rams, or as it's often pronounced in English, Reims. This is noteworthy because in 987, the French king Hugh Capet was crowned in Rams. After this, almost every French king was crowned in the Rams Cathedral. For centuries, the wine of Champagne was overshadowed by Burgundy. They eventually tried to shift production to white wines to differentiate themselves from Burgundy, but that didn't really work. It wasn't a bad idea given how far north Champagne is, but it just didn't pan out. Eventually, in the 16th and 17th centuries, they stumbled upon the idea of producing a white wine from red grapes. 
The initial results tasted fine, but they had a gray or pinkish hue, making them rather unpopular. Most of the vineyards at the time were actually owned by monasteries, because of the need for sacramental wine and because they just owned a lot of land. One of the monks who worked at the Benedictine monastery of Houvelière was an especially good winemaker and took the science of winemaking quite seriously. And he had a name that you've probably heard before. His name was Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon figured out how to clarify the white wines, which were made out of red grapes. He focused on the cultivation of Pinot Noir and was considered to be a perfectionist by the other monks. Today, the primary grapes still used for the creation of Champagne are Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. He actually figured out a whole host of techniques that improved wine production, including how to prune the vines and how and when to press the grapes. However, there was still a problem with the production of wine in the region. Because it was further north than most wine-producing regions, it would be colder in the winter and it would get colder faster in the autumn. The lower temperatures would stop the fermentation process, which would result in undigested yeast and sugars in the wine. These sugars would form carbon dioxide gas in the spring when the yeast reactivated and would cause the bottles to literally explode. The exploding bottles would often cause nearby bottles to explode as well, which resulted in a disastrous chain reaction. The bottles that didn't explode would often have bubbles and would be very effervescent. The bubbles in the wine were considered a flaw in the product and something that should be eliminated. Bubbly wine became known as Le Vin du Diable, or the Devil's Wine. Beginning around the 17th century, the non-bubbly wine from the Champagne region began being very popular in England. A French writer by the name of Charles de Saint-Evermond was exiled to England where he became a hit in the elite social scene and he was a huge promoter of wines from Champagne. When wines were shipped from Champagne to England, some of them would occasionally be the unwanted bubbly variety. But it turned out, the English loved it. A whole bunch of innovations took place about the same time in the mid-17th century, which made the drink that we now know as Champagne possible. The first was a paper published in 1662 by the scientist Christopher Merritt. He actually figured out why wine sparkled and how to make it happen on purpose. He realized that if you put sugar into any wine before it began to ferment, it would end up sparkling. Most of the non-sparkling wine imported from Champagne was actually delivered in large casks and then rebottled once it got to England. Many of the English merchants began making the wine sparkle themselves, which led to the very odd historical fact that the first purposely created sparkling wines from the Champagne region were actually created in England. The next big innovation was in the area of glassmaking. Mid-17th century England was in the very beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. One of the earliest innovations in England was the ability to make stronger bottles. The English were using coal in their glassmaking versus French wood-fired glassmaking, which allowed for higher temperatures. These new, thicker bottles were resistant to exploding and were critical to the creation of sparkling wine. The final innovation was actually a rediscovery of something that the Romans did centuries before but had been lost, the use of cork to stop bottles. Believe it or not, the French initially used oil-soaked rags to stop bottles. According to legend, Dom Perignon himself rediscovered the use of tree bark from the cork tree to stop bottles. Some people dispute the legend, but either way, it was during this time that corks came into use. With Champagne becoming so popular in England, it soon began to spread in popularity with other royal courts in Europe. At the beginning of the 18th century, it began to gain popularity amongst the French elite. 
The French regent at the time, the Duke of Orleans, began serving champagne at his parties in Paris, which caused it to gain in popularity with the French nobility. The rise in French popularity of sparkling wine in the early 18th century resulted in many of the winemakers of the Champagne region shifting their production from traditional wine to sparkling wine. Houses like Moet and Chandon and Tatinger were all established during this period in the early 1700s. There were further improvements made in Champagne production. One problem was sediment, which collected at the bottom of bottles. Normally, Champagne would just be decanted into a new container, which works fine with most wines. With Champagne, however, if you did that, it would lose its effervescence. This was solved through a process called riddling. Riddling is allowing the sediment to collect in the neck of the bottle by storing it with the top of the bottle pointing down. When the bottle was opened, the pressure of the gas inside the bottle would eject the sediment. In the 19th century, extra sugar was added to champagne to make it sweeter. However, the British preferred drier champagne with less sugar. This led to the creation of what was known as demi-sec champagne, which was half as sweet, and finally to champagne with no sugar at all, which became known as brute champagne, which is the most popular type of champagne made today. Over time, as champagne consumption spread, several traditions and norms developed surrounding the consumption of champagne, one of which is that there are particular types of glassware that are used for drinking champagne, and there are two very different types of glasses with different theories behind them. One is the champagne flute, which is a very long and slender glass. The theory is that it has a very small exposed surface area at the top to prevent bubbles from escaping. However, it also doesn't allow for the wine to be swirled and for aroma to escape. The other is a very wide and shallow glass, which is pretty much the opposite of a flute, known as a champagne coupe. This is the choice of most wine aficionados. Coupe glasses can be stacked into a tower for some special events. The tower should always be stacked such that there is only one glass at the very top that the champagne is poured into. The champagne will then overflow and fill all of the glasses below it. The world's largest champagne glass tower was built in January of 2022 in Dubai. It was a pyramid that consisted of 54,740 glasses and stood 8.23 meters or 27 feet tall. One tradition which is done on formal occasions is the opening of a bottle of champagne with a sword or a saber, known as a sabrage. It involves swinging a saber such that it would catch the glass lip near the top of the bottle and take off the glass and cork in one fell swoop, if it's done correctly. The tradition supposedly developed when Napoleon's troops were marching back in victory and people threw them bottles of champagne in celebration. As it was hard to open on a horse, they just used their sabers. The proper way to open a bottle is actually to use the blunt side of the saber, not the edge. And you aren't cutting the bottle so much as just pushing the top off. And if you're ever at a fancy restaurant with a sommelier and order champagne, you might ask them to open the bottle with a saber if you'd like something special. Most trained sommeliers should know how to do it. If you open a bottle normally, you should always hold it at an angle away from anyone, as the cork can actually be dangerous when it flies out. Champagne has become the way many sports teams and race car drivers celebrate championships. It primarily has to do with the fact that champagne is under pressure, and when you open it, especially if you shake it up, it will spray everywhere. The tradition is believed to have started with Moet and Chandon donating champagne to winners of Formula One races in 1967. Champagne bottles can be found in multiple sizes. A typical bottle is 750 milliliters. The smallest bottle is called a piccolo, which is only 187 milliliters. And the largest is the Melchizedek, which can hold up to 40 standard bottles of champagne. One of the biggest issues surrounding champagne has to do with the name. 
If you're a wine producer in, let's say, Napa Valley, California, Australia, or even a different part of France, you cannot market wine under the name Champagne. This is called appellation. It designates the location where grapes were grown and a wine was created. By the Treaty of Madrid, which governs international trademarks, the term Champagne is protected and only sparkling wine from France's Champagne region can use the term. A sparkling wine produced anywhere else can't be called Champagne. So, Prosecco is a sparkling wine from northern Italy, and Cava is a sparkling wine from Spain. Both are very similar to Champagne, but they can't use the name. There are many Champagne cellars you can visit if you visit the Champagne region of France. Within walking distance of the Cathedral of Rums, there are several old Champagne cellars that you can visit, and I highly recommend it if you're in the region as the cellars and vineyards are actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Champagne has had an outsized impact on culture compared to every other type of wine. It is considered the beverage for wealth and celebration, and it's what you order when there's a special occasion. And all of this is due to some winemaking monks in France who accidentally created exploding bottles of wine several centuries ago. Everything Everywhere Daily is an Airwave Media podcast. The executive producer is Darcy Adams. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. Today's review comes from listener 845 Limited over at Apple Podcasts in the United States. They write, Top Shelf. New to this pod, or maybe not. I discovered this about a week ago and have absolutely binged it. I don't even look at the title subject because, regardless, every episode is totally interesting. And the signal-to-noise ratio is at the top. The perfect word is succinct. He delivers every bit that the subject needs and wastes not even one moment with nonsense, fluff, or awful humor, something that most pods haven't figured out yet. For what he packs into a 10-minute episode, this podcast rates 6 out of 5. Well, thank you, 845 Limited. I succinctly, and without any cheesy humor, acknowledge your review. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a question, you too can have it read on the show.